Hello, everybody. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Before we get into today's episode, which I'm excited about, I wanted to remind you guys that I've launched a separate substack that covers the industrial and energy politics stuff we used to cover here, in addition to doing long-form interviews with people in the nuclear and energy space. That's called Nuclear Barbarians. You can check that in the show notes. And in the Patreon, we are wrapping up our reading of Christopher Lash's The True and Only Heaven, and we'll be moving on to Kosilek's Future's Past. So if you're interested in that and want the entire Patreon back catalog, which includes our reading series on McIntyre's After Virtue, you can go ahead, subscribe to that in the show notes for seven bucks a month. And now for today's main event, there's a guest I've been trying to, well, I've wanted to get on here for a while and I only had to try once and that's Anton Yeager. What's up, Anton? Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, yeah. Happy to have you. So I came across your work, I think, probably through listening to The Bunga Boys. And I believe I had read one of your academic papers on 19th century American populism, which was really helpful. But I was wondering if you could do a brief little intro of yourself so our guests know who you are. Yeah, so I'm Anton, Anton Jaeger. I'm Belgium from Brussels more specifically, uh, which is often a nationality people get confused about. I'm not Dutch or French. It's some of these like dirty European hybrids, but my dad is, <laughs> my, my dad is Austrian, which explains the surname. But I'm basically like an academic researcher at this point. I finished my PhD in 2020 and now I'm postdocing, trying to turn doctoral manuscripts into books, trying to turn articles into published articles, et cetera, et cetera, and hopefully land a job soon. But yeah, that, that's basically where I'm at now. Awesome. Well, fingers crossed on landing the job. I know it's, uh, it's the worst job is looking for a job. Absolutely. And then the labor market's the best it's ever been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Certainly the academic one. Yeah, everything's coming up Millhouse, man. Exactly. So you have written a recent piece for the Tribune, right? That's what it's called, or is it just Tribune? I can never remember. Yeah, um, yeah, it's Tribune. Yeah, there's a version of it in Jacobin as well, both in the published and in the online version. So it's been circulating between different mags at this point. Okay, cool. Yeah, because Tribune is sort of the UK variant of Jacobin, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah, that's one way to conceptualize it, yeah. Okay, okay. And it is called How the World Went from Post-Politics to Hyper-Politics, and it covers a lot of the like noisy stasis stuff we've been noticing on this podcast. And you had a great conversation with the guys at Bunga about it, funnily enough, like right when I invited you on here. But I think there's a lot more to explore. And before we get into this shift from the post-political world of sort of the post-Cold War neoliberal consensus to whatever the hell this thing is we are in now, which you describe as hyperpolitics, I wanted to ask you about your conception of politics generally and what you mean when you say politics. That's a very, very hard question. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure 
many political theorists would even be able to give you a sufficient answer. I, so, because I often define what I see as politics in contrast and to define it positively is, is quite challenging. I think one way I define it in a more abstract sense, but then based on the political world or the political forms we're used to from the 20th century is, is it's basically how humanity deliberates on its collective ends. Mm -hmm. So basically where humanity wants to go and how humans collectively decide on how they reproduce nature and how they reproduce themselves is basically the central question of politics. And there was a whole set of social forms that were associated with that collective deliberation around ends, which we know from the 20th century, which went into disarray and into decline at the close of the century, which were also actively disabled and I think decimated in some cases, where this collective deliberation of ends was purely replaced by a mode of reproducing ourselves and reproducing nature mediated by the market. And this is the post-political era we know from the 1990s and the 2000s, which collective deliberation on ends or politics as a human activity almost enters into crisis. So it's the world we know described by Peter Mayer, but also people by Colin Crouch who have a variety of names for it, such as post-democracy or post-politics. And then we have the world of the 2010s in which there does seem to be more collective deliberation on ends. So the question of where we want to go as a society or as a human community actually reimposes itself again. But it does so in an extremely one-dimensional and limited way and in a way which is completely unrecognizable if you approach our current era of repoliticization or the re-entry of politics with the categories borrowed or lent from the 20th century experience. So the 20th century experience, or sorry, the 20th century is well and truly buried, but at the same time, the 2000s and the 1990s are gone and we're in this extremely weird liminal space in which confusion reigns. Okay, so, well, I mean, that was a way more than adequate definition of politics, so thank you. <laughs> you were like, that's really hard, I don't know if I can do that, and then you did. So when I take a look at the post-political era, which is basically deference to technocrats and managers, Right. Like that's how I remember experiencing that when I read work from that area era. That's very much what it feels like. You know, whenever I read like Simon Critchley or something, he's talking about like doing work at the edges or the margins or whatever. I'm like, okay, like this is <laughs> we're we're the mass movements are gone now. If yeah, we know it's something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like that's yeah, not <laughs> Yeah, as Chibber said, like whenever you approach something from the margins, you know, you've, you've, you've given up the desire to even start from the center. So yeah, the, the, the temperature is very clear. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm wondering, like, what trends get set up in the post-political era that have carried over or set up maybe like a path dependencies for this hyper-political era that you've noticed? Yeah, very good question. I think there are a variety of management tactics or how you organize the deaf politics politically almost. Because I, I don't think the era of post-politics can just be described as an era of deference to technocrats. I think it's more described as that so many of these essential human questions get delegated to markets and markets are these ways in which humans 
individually decide on how they organize a collective life without conscious human control. And technocrats and experts are basically the shepherds or the sort of mediators on the side, which allow for people or sometimes coax and coerce people into this dependency on the market. So they force people to replace politics by market mediation. And of course, this requires a certain form of deference, but at the same time, it's not clear that people actually respect the technocrats in that sense. But I think there are two trends which are really key to that post-political moment. The first is the emptying out of classical representative institutions, mm. whether we're talking about unions or parties or civic associations, or even on a more granular basic level neighborhood groups, which usually mediated individuals' relationship to the states, but which also made claims on how markets should be curtailed or the material benefits of the wealth that markets generate and where they should go, um, which enter into a decline, partly because people are leaving, partly also because people are actively pushed out of them. So if you look at Thatcher or Reagan or even at some European countries uh, with anti-union laws, with the sort of general push to break those institutions that connected masses to elites. Um, and those are mainly replaced by what you could call marketing or speculative politics, in which politicians don't rely on a popular base inside their parties anymore and just begin to think out an imaginary popular will with the help of spin doctors and of cons consultancy firms. So this is one way in which post politics is organized. The other is a specific mode of capital accumulation or a way of generating wealth, which is heavily dependent on credit, which supposedly requires less political inference. So instead of collective bargaining between unions and employers, which basically redistributes the surplus, there is this sense that you don't need these political mechanisms to make sure that you can buy the consent of your population in a capitalist economy. So post-politics, I think, is facilitated, one, by marketing in the era of electoral politics, and then secondly, mainly by very cheap credit or sort of buying time, which Wolfgang Strick nicely described mm -hmm. in that book that came out after 2008. And what 2008 does, although with a slight delay or with... Uh, sort of slow burning intensity is that it completely disrupts the two social bargains which post-politics rested on. So this previous mode of capital accumulation completely collapses. It's not that it's just that it loses legitimacy, but it can't buy the consent anymore. And at the same time, the tricks that marketing politics comes up with, which tries to convince a population that people who are governing them are actually legitimate, also completely break down. And as the Bunga boys so nicely describe it, the era of post-politics is then answered with an era of anti-politics, which varieties of populism, as we call it, are often the most emblematic expression. Mm. Yeah, it seems to me like in the American context, what when I take a look at the way the managers and technocrats sort of arrive in the way you describe them, is it's this weird, like fragmented sort of like Madisonianism where it's like you have a series of weird referees that are allegedly neutral that are meant to both manage this debt economy and to do the sort of affective massaging that electoral representation has turned into. And after 2020, after COVID, it seems that there's just incredible more hostility than I remember even in the anti-political window from, let's say, 2008 to like probably 2019. 
Yeah, definitely. And the image of the referee is a very interesting one because it's a very recurrent motif in neoliberal thought where the ideal role of the state as it's thought out by neoliberals is not the sort of interventionist player in a game which like actively participates or favors and stimulates or even changes the rules of the game. It's rather that the rules of the games are set. The state exclusively turns itself into an arbiter or referee which never takes part in the game itself which can penalize people or discipline people quite harshly. So this also explains why the neoliberal state has all these massive, uh, for example, carceral means at its disposal. So it's not a completely absent state, but it's a state that leaves the game of private accumulation to itself and basically tries to arrange um, a modicum of consent under this uh, specific era. So it's a very weird form of authority in which you constantly delegate decisions to another level and you are basically not responsible for what happens in the economy. But at the same time, you have to make sure that you discipline and you coerce people who, for example, want to actively change the rules of the game to their favor. So it's a mixture of neutrality and extreme partisanship, which this neoliberal state participates in. Um, And what we see after 2000. 10 in general is that this neutrality is compromised partly on demand of capital because capital can't fathom the fact that a state would completely withhold itself from economic intervention. So what we see with central banks and QE is that there's a weird form of state involvement, which is both in continuity and discontinuity with the previous neoliberal era. But at the same time, precisely because the state has so retreated from the economic game, and it has to re-enter it, it does so under a state of illegitimacy, which is very, very difficult to remedy. So those anti-political responses also imply an attack on experts, an attack on the notion of expertise, but at the same time, it's not clear that the populism or the anti-politics which surfaces in response to it actually has anything to displace that mode of governance with, um, or it has no response to this complete disconnect between what you could call politics and policy. Hmm. I like that you highlighted the breakdown of responsibility. So we've done some coverage here and I've done it on my other podcast on how certain segments of the American electricity grid are managed through these highly neoliberal wholesale markets. And it's unclear that anyone in those regions is actually responsible for keeping the electricity grid running. So when accidents happen, there's just a lot of like hot potato. Texas is going through that right now. And at the same time, when we're taking a look at the populist thing, it's also unclear what the responsibilities or political abilities of citizens are at this juncture as well, is what I'm hearing. Definitely. I mean, the sort of privatization of the state, or you could almost say the marketization of the state, which was inaugurated in the post political era, um, creates these um, sort of almost Russian doll-like structures at the heart of so many economic institutions in which, as, as I used to say in neoliberal jargon, you basically have a nexus of private contracts um, in which from the outside you see a coherent structure. And when you look deeper and deeper, there's actually no one who's actually um, the so-called uh, Turk in the, in, the chess, mm-hmm. in the chess machine or exactly who can actually be held responsible for this. So it's basically a sort of collection of markets or a collection of uh, private islands of markets in which it's not clear who's actually responsible. And the, same, and the state mainly opts as a market maker or as a market police insofar as it actively enforces this type of marketization. So it 
has to be there to sell it to private developers. It has to be there to actively assure the legal framework for privatization. But in the end, when someone actually tries to take that into public control or politically contest this privatization, the state has to also act as market police and sort of actively constrain political interference in these market mechanisms at the same time. And this, of course, generates all kinds of crises and at the same time constrains the amount of control people have over the state insofar as the state has dissolved itself. Mm-hmm. So there's this beautiful image that is often used in neoliberal thought of Odysseus tying himself to the mast to shield himself from the dem- democratic sirens which are circling around the boat. But you have to imagine that there is an Odysseus which has tied itself to the mast to the extent that it can't even free itself. And when people actually make demands on it, it says like, well, I'm, I'm powerless in the face of the market forces that mm-hmm. I myself have actively supported and liberated. Yeah. So right now in Texas, ERCOT, that, that's who allegedly manages their grid. A lot of those people, well, ERCOT has something like over a hundred people trying to sue it for the blackouts that happened last February. And now the big debate at issue is whether or not ERCOT is part of the state and therefore immune from that or not, <laughs> which yeah, to me like, serves question, as like the perfect yeah. example. But it, it's fascinating because there's this deeply litigatory impulse, which is also an individualist impulse in American culture or in Anglo-Saxon culture as such, in which if you don't have organized institutions to actually take on vested economic interests or the state, then sort of legalistic uh, litigation is basically Mm -hmm. the only type of agency that's still at the disposal of you. But at the same time, since the state constantly delegates all these responsibilities to private actors, it's the worst of both worlds insofar as the private actors can escape responsibility when it suits them, while at the same time, it's the state that really suffers the loss of legitimacy once those lawsuits come in. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that the atmosphere created by the litigious nature of American society and this responsibility hot potato plays into what you describe as hyper-politics, where everything is politicized, but nothing's going on, right? Everything's antagonistic, but nothing's changing. I see these things as like related phenomena. Yes. I mean, I I would distinguish the legalism or the litigious impulse we describe from the hyper-politics we're seeing now, although I do see a spectrum of continuity between both of them. So what really unites them, I think, and I think this litigiousness pre-exists our current hyper-political era insofar. It's an older response to a lack of organizational strength and cohesion, which people resort to when they want to take on established power. But the spectrum of continuity between hyperpolitics and this litigatory attitude, I think, is in the essential individualism of this type of action. Mm. So both in the case of hyperpolitics and in the type of this litigatory impulse, you cannot conceive that there might be forms of collective action to you available, which would allow you to contest or to assume this political conflict. And instead, you radicalize this individual response to it by either taking someone to court or by then joining these extremely transitory protest movements or by basically hate posting online. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I guess we've, we've forestalled it a little bit, but we should probably define this now. When you write about hyperpolitics, what are you writing about? Like, how would you describe it? I think the best way to do it, and this is a cop-out, which I also practiced in the Bunga episode, but which I think is a legitimate <laughs> cop-out, is that as with the definition of politics, 
um, it should be defined in contrast. Hmm. And here, the evidence is mainly anecdotal, and some of it is more concrete, but I think it holds up insofar as if we think of the year 2021, and we think, of, or 2020, and we can't contrast it with previous years, whether it's the early years after the crisis when Occupy or the populist wave were growing in Europe, so for example, 2011, or we contrast it with the post-historical 1990s and the 2000s, there are some very clear differences just jump out, which are just very, very explicit. So it's very clear that we no longer live in a post-political world in which politics is solely something for professionals or for political junkies, in which you basically have people say like, oh, he's really into politics, which at the time meant basically you could either be a crazy libertarian or someone who's very esoterically interested in certain aspects of Marxism, but politics was basically something for people who were addicted to it, who mm -hmm. professionalized and specialized in this type of activity. And the rest of the world just goes about their private life. So it is a complete retreat into privacy, which also expre expresses itself in the fact that people don't like to talk about who they vote for. So in Europe, this is extremely striking in that in this part, uh, sorry, in the era of established party democracy, where you lived, what family you were part of, what uh, restaurants or what hospitals or what newspapers you read was always already an indication of your political orientation. So the boundaries between the private and the public in terms of politics were very, very fluid. What you see in the 1990s and 2000s is that politics becomes privatized even to the extent that people don't want to actively talk about what their political preferences are, even if they have politics at all. And the other expression is, of course, the heightening abstention rates. So across Europe, but also in the US and also in other parts of the third world, there are fewer and fewer people that actually participate in elections. And then there's a civic component, which fewer and fewer people actually are part of political parties. If we contrast that era of post-politics to the anti-politics of the 2010s, in which people do join these new movements and there are all these political competitors that take on these traditional parties, we can see there's already a move from post-politics to anti-politics. But if we compare that with today, in which a certain type of political consciousness has now been universally reawakened. So even people who are not political junkies or who specialize in politics find themselves forced or find themselves talking about these political issues, whether it's race relations, whether it's the climate issue, whether it's all issues about wokeness, for example. It's obvious that that era is now over. Something has actually changed. Mm. So what I want to talk about in terms of hyperpolitics is that it can be distinguished from the anti-politics we knew from the 2010s, insofar as there is no concrete attempt anymore to actually take part in electoral politics or to compete with those traditional parties. It has also no rejection of institutions of representation, which was pretty central to that populist moment. But it's also completely incomparable to the quietism we know from the 1990s and the 2000s, in which, as I said, populism, uh, sorry, politics was exclusively professional sphere. And the way I think we should describe this new era is that it's a repoliticization. So politics has re-entered the public sphere, but it has done so in an extremely limited and one-dimensional way insofar as the separation between politics and policy, which was installed in the post-political area, has actually not gone away, but has been intensified or there's been a sort of renewed politicization in one dimension only. Right. So the thing that I see carried over from 
I, I love the idea of the people who are just hardcore libertarians or or weirdo Marxists being interested in politics. Like they're addicted, they're obsessed in the 90s. And I think that to me is like one of the strongest carryovers in terms of the diffusion of that and the transformation of this into what you're calling hyperpolitics. And by that, I mean, I'm pulling from work of a, a friend of the show, Catherine D, aka Default Friend, who takes a look at fandom cultures online. And what hyperpolitics looks like to me is like competing ideological, like fandom communities from Tumblr getting in endless flame wars. And they have these like qualities where they become not something you do or engage in, but more constitutive of your actual individual identity, allegedly. Yeah, I think that's an excellent comparison. And I think we can talk about the invasion of this consumer logic into the era of uh, into the era of hyperpolitics, or what does it mean for politics to be colonized? by consumerism to a degree that I don't think we could even imagine in the 20th century, is that this is something that is digitally very visible, or at least online, in which you literally have this supermarket of ideologies, mm -hmm. or this shopping list of all kinds of compounds which people can compose. So I'm a, like Titoist, Maoist. Right, I used to call that uh, Voltron politics, where you're like, <laughs> I'm going to take all the cool shit from stuff I've read and put it together and act like there are zero trade-offs. Right? Like it's just an endless hyphenated list of parts of things I think are cool. Yeah, or you can compare it to customizing your avatar in a video. Totally. Game, which you have all these different options and you just stick them together in a, in a blender. But I think which, what is different from the sort of consumerism we certainly knew from the 1990s and 2000s is as, as you say, it's actually about politics. Like it's, it is about collective questions about how we order our society or what kind of interests are assumed, but it's always extremely individualized insofar as the shopping list of ideologies you propose is done so on an individual level. And there is no real organizational component to any of these ideological identitarian choices. So if I decide to call myself like a Sorelian Strasserite, I mean, there, there is basically a, there's, there's a kind of slot machine you can get on going. There's like, like the Pomo generator, you can have the online ideology generator. I'm sure someone's built this algorithm already. Yeah. But there is no organizational referent for any of those choices. So who is the institution you're orientating yourself to? Who are the fellow comrades or colleagues that share in this ideology? And of course, there are sort of islands of organization or diffuse organizational structures, which people do orient themselves to. So there are Republican Democratic parties, there are still socialist or Christian Democratic parties in Europe as well. But those institutions are becoming more and more diffuse and are just becoming identitarian markers, and they have fewer and fewer means at their disposal to actually discipline and keep members connected to them. And that, of course, I said, stimulates this individualist consumerist approach to politics where everyone just basically composes their own uh, ideological cocktail and then brings it to the public marketplace. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking about online fandom of various you know, media, things, whether it's like Marvel or like, you know, whatever. And I live in Los Angeles, which is like the death star for all of this stuff, you know? <laughs> and 
The thing that someone pointed out to me, I think it was Fox Green over at Commune, Space Commune, he was like, a lot of the advertising firms that work for Marvel and Universal Studios end up working on presidential campaigns. And they're bringing the same tools that they've learned in creating this consumption cult around whatever now politicized like comic book franchise into the explicitly electoral realm. And that's something that I feel like is uh, very revealing and also under investigated here, especially in the American context. Yeah, definitely. And it's an older story as far as if you read Adorno and Horkheimer about the living hell of Los Angeles in the 40s and 50s. They certainly, <laughs> they certainly had an inkling of what this would mean, but I don't think they quite imagine what the colonization of the life world of politics by the market or the marketization of politics would actively entail. And I think in the case of Europe, you can even see this more explicitly in that all the techniques which these traditional parties begin to deploy to counteract, to compensate for their dwindling membership bases and their shrinking voting tallies is that they turn to these polling and speculation techniques, which essentially come out of the financial sector. Mm -hmm. So whether it's all these predictive consumer survey, surveys, focus group, online petitions, these are all marketing research tools which have been coined firstly by big corporations or by the financial sector, which are essentially speculative and which imply a form of agency which basically accepts the necessity of the market and which turns the electorate into a black box subject to market research and which is then supposed to counteract for the fact that you can't actually speak to society anymore via your base or via these mass political campaigns anymore. So there, the pipeline from Los Angeles to Washington also exists in Europe. It's, far as it's just a pipeline from McKinsey to the... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, McKinsey basically writes COVID policy at this point in many European mm -hmm. governments, but it's been writing electoral strategy for decades already. God, man, I just you just scratch and then suddenly there's like a McKinsey report right underneath whatever problem you're looking at. It's pretty crazy. Oh, yeah, they're, they're like the shadow sovereign. I mean, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to go full QN on to, to, to see that they they run a really large part of the, of the contemporary state system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to me, one of the problems I have with the whole polling and like, what are people feeling? I mean, first of all, depending on the day, people's minds are going to change on a lot of things, but there's this whole like fiction about just the nature of being asked a question and how that formulates your response that just like sort of delegitimizes that whole endeavor to me. Yes, def I mean, definitely. It's first, a debate about polling could be had in several ways, but I think the most important fact to keep in mind is that the philosophy of polling or the very idea of polling as a political strategy or as a way of rallying a base without actually rallying a base is that it relies on this political psychology in which you basically take people's interests and sentiment as pre-given and unable to be mediated. So it's basically accepting that you can't really change people's minds. You have to take the attitudes 
which are generated by the contemporary capitalist economy as pre-given. You just have to see how you can basically pitch to them most easily. And it doesn't actually imply any possibility for prioritizing or changing any of these attitudes. So I think the example of anti-migrant politics in Europe is really good for this insofar as there's this famous story of the French writer Didier Ribon, who wrote a book, uh, Returning to Rams, which is about his working class family from the north of France, which used to be staunch communist voters and party members in the 60s and 70s, which really saw itself at the center of this industrial proletariat in France, and which basically switched to the far right in the 1980s and the 1990s. And the story he tells, which is quite interesting, is that in the 60s and 70s, he remembers quite distinctly that his parents always had the softly anti-migrant or anti um, antipathy towards foreigners, which was always latently there. But he said it never played a really important or outside influence in their daily lives because you had a communist party that didn't talk about this factor as in any way relevant to their vision of the world. Mm -hmm. So this political sentiment was never activated or inflamed to the extent that it could become a political force. And it's only with the decline and the sellout of this communist party that suddenly you have a party that comes along and takes this pre-existing antipathy and basically activates it into something completely different. And what the philosophy of polling basically does is that you have to take this antipathy as somehow unchangeable, not amenable to any form of political strategy, and that you basically have to accept it as a, as a fit accompli, as they say. And in a lot of European penal cultures, whether you talk about the Dutch one or the Belgian one or even the German one, precisely because parties have given up actively molding and actively prioritizing certain attitudes, they've basically had to acquiesce to this general anti-migrant or this anti-foreigner fold. But the philosophy of polling, I think, actively stimulates this type of, yeah, basically uh, sort of laziness. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the assumption of there is like a type of passivity, you know, and it, it limits us to like one conception of representation, which is whatever you think your people want, you do no matter how you feel about it, because you're their representative, rather than you as somebody who's in some sort of relationship with them, and meant to be discharging their will, but also might convince them of other things, right? There's a whole feedback loop that's just pushed to the side. Yes, that's it. That's exactly right. So it's about disabling the political feedback loop, which representation is all about. So once I, I tell you that this particular political fact is salient to you and that you should construct a worldview around it, your political attitude itself is going to change. So the point Eribon makes about his parents is that the antipathy to migrants, which was already there, qualitatively changes because someone grants it political representation and, and legitimate, legitimates it in that way and makes it easier for you to conceive a whole worldview around it. And what the polling philosophy basically does is that it completely shortcuts or eliminates that moment of representation and mediation and just says, we have to take people as they are, and we can't actually actively mm. construct certain political opinions. That's simply impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the, it's the end of a certain thicker political, like, discursive thing. You know, that seemed pretty yeah, essential yeah, yeah. for uh, most of the 20th century. Now, I'm glad you brought up this uh, story about this formerly communist family that ends up becoming hard right later on, because when I was listening to you on Bunga and early 
at the top of this, you talked about how unrecognizable hyperpolitics is when you contrast it with just like what would be basic facts or the basic assumptions of 20th century politics. My question is, and I know that this can often be seen as like a midwit thing, but I've really been trying to like sit with this and to be like, how helpful just for reading the political scene is the old French parliament left-right distinction because all of this feels so weird now. I think there's a reason why it feels weird is that you have had a structural weakening of this cleavage as somehow central to how we conceive politics. So there's a lot of very interesting work by a political scientist, a British political scientist, Christopher Bickerton, which does talk about the replacement of this left-right axis already in the 2000s and the 2010s, mainly in Europe, by this new technocrats versus populist axis we are usually accommodated to. Mm. So precisely with the decomposition and disaggregation of the classical parties of the right and the left, mainly in Europe, but also in the United States and also in the rest of the world, it actually becomes much more difficult to pin down what left and right mean as such. And as ideologies, they become very, very diffuse. And with the decline of those traditional party democracies, you also have the decline of a left-right cleavage as somehow determinant in the structuring of political competition. And what comes in its place is basically a contest either between technocrats and populists, so people who celebrate expertise and people who celebrate a very diffuse popular will, or a new weird hybrid between technocrats and populists, which they call the techno-populists, which are people who precisely celebrate or combine a plea for expertise with a plea for popular empowerment. So it's the idea of a sort of people's expert insofar as if you can consult people via the internet, you can basically get technocrats in charge who listen to all these polling, uh, all this polling data that gets to them via the internet. And that is basically the way to do 21st century governance. And the five-star movement in Italy is the perfect example of this weird wielding between mm. the technocratic and the, pop the populist. And what's so typical about the five-star movement is that they're nearly impossible to position on the left-right axis. So they really pay testimony to this world in which left and right as categories have become completely historically antiquated. Mm. I also think that this can be captured somewhat by the aspirations of Extinction Rebellion in the UK with these like weird people assemblies ideas. A very good example. Yeah, and it's the best example there is. Um, because you basically have the random sortition of citizens as the pure populace or the pure people in its unmediated form. But that citizens' assembly to make informed decisions about climate policy does have to be advised by a panel of experts who surprisingly all happen to agree on this essential diagnosis that yeah this and this needs to be done about the climate uh, issue and there you have a, a magnificent techno populist fusion right i mean what's so fascinating about this is the theatricality of the populist element because sortition could be seen as a fairly radical throwback to athens or something like that, where a lot of political appointments are done by lot. That's what democracy means. It's not so much electoral representation, but there's this like almost fear of the power of that demand. And so it is turned into this sort of performance of opinion having 
that is then mitigated by unelected experts who I imagine would put incredibly stiff guardrails on what could even be done or conceived of. Yeah, I think I think that's an excellent way of phrasing it. Although I'd try to make or put the emphasis on the fact that the watering down or the domestication of this radical philosophy of surtition is unsurprising insofar as what's so typical about this ideal of sortition is that it belongs to an age of classical democracy in which you basically have a very, very small republic in which you don't have these complex economies with all kinds of market dependency. And what's so typical about the fact of representation also as a form of abstraction is that in these large modern states, these mechanisms of sortition basically become very, very possible, uh, uh, difficult to execute precisely because they're, they're so large and people are engaged in these new private economic pursuits, which makes sortition impossible. And what you have with Extinction Rebellion is the revival of this classical ideal of democracy in these modern capitalist states, which are completely not well suited for it. Mm -hmm. And precisely because they realize the unfeasibility of it, they have to resort to this technocratic fix, which makes it possible for sortition to still appear as somehow functioning. But as you say, that mainly just generates opinions that are meant to conform to a pre-given consensus. Because this is a striking thing insofar as you had a Belgian example of the sortition process, which is called the G1000, in which mm -hmm. like thousand people signed up for this popular assembly. And then there was a series of experts which were supposedly neutrally picked to advise this body of citizens on their advice. And surprise, surprise, in the end, they ended up with policies on labor market reform, which were completely indistinguishable from the Belgian employers associations. So they clearly had picked very specific labor market economists who said like flexibilize, flexibilize, get rid of all these uh, social provisions. And then the citizens assembly ended up deferring to this expertise and they were in complete agreement with employers on this. It seems like, you know, so in, in my the rest of my life, professional life, I deal with energy politics. And of course, you're dealing with highly technical, high stakes infrastructure decisions, which has certainly, I would say, put a damper on certain Athenian impulses I have, let's say, um, only out of intellectual humility. And I think the figure of the expert and the nature of democracy and the hyper-political era is, I, I don't think anybody knows what to do with it at this point. It's a concern that's been around for a long time, but what is, like, how are we supposed to develop at this stage democratic relationship with expertise in this hyper-political field? Is that even a possible horizon, do you think? I think the missing factor in a lot of these debates, whether it's the question, if you can democratize something like central banking or you can democratize something like energy or climate politics, which admittedly suffer from this massive epistemic differential or sort of knowledge differential between the knowledge required to carry out these massively complex operations and the general fact that a lot of people are not usually informed or underinformed about these issues is that there is no mediator which were classically there in the 20th century, which is precisely the political party 
or the institution. And what the political party does is that it has an internal hierarchy. It has a set of paid experts and specialists who exclusively concern themselves with strategy and policy. And then it has a member base that can vote for those functionaries and vote for the specialists inside. So if you look at the classical model of the second international Marxist party, they had these bureaucrats that were permanently paid and that were paid to think and paid to strategize. And then it had these worker bases, which did choose and did have control about which functionaries were actually in control or which faction would, would actually be in head of the party. And that allows you to have modes of representation and delegation, which means that every cook can govern, but every cook has to still uh, put themselves up for a candidacy within that party. Um, while at the same time acknowledging the necessity for expertise. So the idea that these were just these big assemblies in which everyone had their say was absolutely untrue. These parties were highly procedural. They were quite hierarchical. They were capable of nearly military forms of discipline when it was necessary to orchestrate a certain campaign. And I think that mediating factor or that political creature has completely disappeared from the political scene and that is what makes it so difficult for us to imagine how you could potentially combine uh, complex expertise with uh, popular control or with general control of policymaking. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know that you're also a fan of the work of Theta Skashpol and the way yeah, she describes I, the hollowing out of American civil society and going from membership organizations to like basically donor pools <laughs> that then yes, have yeah, experts yeah. at the top that then go do the decision making or go do i mean the ngo complex is huge here i have participated in it to a degree and it is amazing what a political workaround it is and i think the summer riots of 2020 and the cavalcade of donations that rolled through some of these groups has really brought to the fore the element that has replaced the type of party organization that you've just described. Yeah, this is a situation in which the US really is the future in, in a very, very scary way insofar as the decline of European party democracy ref is reflected in the increasing NGOization or the increasing non-profitization of this civil society, which basically creates this simulation of what a civil society is, in which you have the idea of all these representative institutions, such as NGO, supposedly speaking for constituencies, they have a very firm grip on. But once you actually move closer to them, you see that they're exclusively made up of professionals, survive of donor or philanthropic VC money, and they don't have a base at all. So the way Scotch Ball nicely describes it is that they practice a form of politics or mediation, which is basically advocacy without members. Mm -hmm. So you either have these heads without bodies, as far as they, they have big brain trusts and they have all these smart people inside them, they're very, very well funded, but they don't have any metabolism or they don't have an actual sort of physical component to them, which used to be the case with these older civic associations. But at the same time, you have these new protest movements that completely refuse to institutionalize, that don't want to professionalize, which are basically bodies without heads that are, mm -hmm. as I say, completely acephalous and have no sense of direction or purpose. No, and it seems just by the sheer nature of, I've been thinking about this a lot, the way that you know, I was a member of the TSA, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to do a whole fucking sob story about why I abandoned that project. But one of the things that I noticed is that it was insanely hard for anyone to hold any leadership position be just by the mere structure of 
how social media mediates political involvement. It's like agonizing to be shat upon by your peers that often, all the time, to have a totally chaotic understanding of what anybody's responsibility is to anybody else. You know, like this is beyond basic agonism you would assume in any sort of organization. I really do think that the extent to which participating in these things online through the black box algorithm systems that online now takes place in has also really changed political subjectivity within groups that might be aspiring to more democracy. Definitely. And I think it's very important to pay heed to the fact that online sociability no way implies that the internet is somehow a neutral medium mm-hmm. or is simply this arena or this instrument you can wield to your own end. Insofar as what you see with the internet is that it does produce these inherent, very specific group dynamics which have very low exit and entry costs. So logging off and logging on are processes which people don't need to undergo a lot of checks or a lot of um, sort of criteria checking for. So that means loads of people are going in and out all the time and you don't have a sense of who your core base is at the same time. But while weirdly enough, they stimulate a form of hectoring and discipline which can be quite authoritarian. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's read Mark Fisher on the Vampire Castle knows what those dynamics consist of, but which don't actually allow you to concretely discipline certain members. So if someone says something ridiculous online, uh, what used to happen before when in parties people published stuff which was outside of the party line, you'd have internal procedures to actually make them work. But since the internet allows people to leave and enter so easily and so cheaply all the time, that form of discipline doesn't actually keep a group together. So it's this very fleeting and very impermanent form of engagement which generates a lot of heat which doesn't allow you to actually build sustainable networks in the long term. And I think this explains why there were all these democratic hopes invested in the internet, which weren't borne out at all. Yeah. And I think to me, when I look at it, this is an an essay I've never really gotten around to writing, but I think that McIntyre's gripe in After Virtue about the sort of liberal hegemony we live in being just different appeals to rules that can never be like adjudicated because you can go back to the assumptions and there's still just core disagreement that that has created this sort of like emotional technocracy of the internet where everyone is appealing to different rule sets within their in-group or whatever and you basically just have moderators that sure can wash in and out but that's all they're doing is resolving those types of conflicts to the extent that they can. It is not in the 20th century mode, as you described with how party discipline might work, a way of being and engaging with each other over a long form process towards a set end. Absolutely. And I think emotional technocracy is an, is an excellent way of describing it so far as it reproduces the dynamics we see in other parts of the economy and the state where the technocrats still have to somehow make sure that this private accumulation regime actually continues. And I, I think what's, what's striking about the internet, or at least compared to the promises that were connected to it in the 2000s, is that it's supposedly horizontalist or democratic and popular aspects which were so celebrated in that earlier 
more innocent online age. I have not gone away today, but it's very clear that at some point, some verticality or some form of hierarchy has to actually impose itself. So there are thought leaders and there are influencers and there are sort of moderators and posters which do tend some kind of social order and which is to say appeal to, to rules, but it never coheres or it never coagulates into anything organizationally concrete. So you just have these shifting group formations that morph from, from one weird figure into another, mm-hmm. which do exert discipline, which can be highly authoritarian. But it's, as Fisher said, or actually this is an expression which comes from David Broder, uh, the historian of Italian communism, who often use it for online engagements, basically Stalinism without utopia. Mm-hmm. So you have the cruelty of the commissar and you have sort of cruel and cynical calculus of the militant but without the utopian horizon that was once connected to it. Well, I think that perfectly captures it. And I think that note is a great way to end. So Anton, thank you so much for joining me. This was a great time. Stalinism without utopias is always a great point to end with. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So everybody stay safe out there and we'll catch you next time. Mm